I'm Kate Daniels. Anything to do with the brain really intrigues and excites me, and I trust it has the same interest for you. So having Leonard Malodinow join us this morning to discuss some of the details from his latest book, that's now out in paperback, is really such a privilege. Let's find out and learn about Elastic, Unlocking Your Brain's Ability to Embrace Change. Leonard Malodinow, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning, Kate. Happy to be here. I'm so appreciative because, uh, as we had just mentioned moments ago, it is awfully early in the morning. But, uh, you know, here we are sometimes doing maybe more of the creative thinking and elasticity that our brain uh, functions at at this hour. Did you find that in your research? Yes, there are different times of day. Some people consider themselves morning people or evening people, and when they talk about that, they often refer to their energy level or to the, their ability at analytical thinking. But for elastic thinking, it's often the opposite. If you're a morning person for logical, analytical thinking, you might be better off doing your imaginative, creative thinking in the evening. Uh, it's often the opposite end of the spectrum when uh, your elastic thinking is best compared to your logical thinking. In fact, you know, I should define elastic thinking and explain what I mean by the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> you can put thinking on the spectrum where at one end there is rule-based thinking, which is algorith algorithmic thinking where you go from A to B to C. It's, it's what we test on the SAT tests and employers often look for when their employees how well you can analyze a situation. And it's very, that's very important. I don't mean by to, um, in anything I say today, to belittle that. That's thinking gets you a long way. But there's another kind of thinking which is not rule-based or which breaks the rules or which looks to see whether you need to break the rules, and that's elastic thinking. That's the other end of the spectrum of thinking. And elastic thinking is has to do with how you even decide what questions to ask, whereas analytical thinking is how to answer those questions uh, systematically. Elastic thinking is how you figure out how to frame the problem that you're looking at, how to approach it, what assumptions to make, or how you examine your assumptions, whether or not to break the assumptions. So it's a much more basic kind of thinking in which you're setting up a problem and figuring out how to think of a problem which often determines the answers you get, as opposed to analytical thinking, which is straightforward, uh, rule-based logic, the kind of thinking that uh, traditional computers do. And this is what is so fascinating about your new book, Elastic, Unlocking Your Brain's Ability to Embrace Change, because it's written in such easy-to-read stories and uh, anecdotes and these I scientific ideas, but it's not, I think, beyond the comprehension of most of us. Plus, it's so fascinating because it's our brain, which is such, obviously, a center part of who we are and what we do. It is, and, and elastic thinking is uh, extremely important in today's world. It's it's always been important, and we always need to use both elastic and analytical thinking. But over the last few decades, uh, as our society has been changing exponentially, which means that the change is getting ever greater, um, we've be become um, began to reach the limits of where people are comfortable uh, with the amount of change. And we really have to look at ourselves and our brains and, and understand how we can best adapt to the change or best think in a way that adapts to change so that we can 
thrive and change. Uh, you know, just look at the workforce. A few decades ago, people were expected to work for the same company most of their careers. They, the company was loyal to them. They were loyal to the company. They did pretty much the same thing and just rose up the ranks. And then it started changing a little bit where maybe you're not at the same company all the time. You're changing companies. And, and then it started, well, not only are you, not, are you changing companies, you're kind of changing the tasks you do and the approach. And, and, and then it became, if you look at the millennials, they're often they're changing the, the industry that they're in, or they're, they're changing their, their job completely over every five years. Uh, the, the, the flux that you see in, in, in the workplace is the same, is reflected by the flux we see in our personal lives as well. Uh, if you look at, you know, the kind of television you, you, you work on or the phone that you use or the computer, you're constantly being faced with new upgrades, new apps, new things you have to learn, new ways of approaching uh, the new devices you get don't have manuals anymore. You're supposed to figure it out or go online and find find the answers. And um, all this is a, a kind of chaos in our lives that we didn't have a few decades ago. And we're all built to actually um, deal with that. Our, our brains are built for change if we know if we know how to use them and how to adapt. And when you don't. Uh, it can, things can go bad, especially in business and companies like um, uh, cab companies, uh, uh, Blockbuster Video, <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica. These are companies that didn't see the change happening and didn't react to it and it went defunct. They, uh, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica could have been Wikipedia. They should have been Wikipedia, but they couldn't see the the, the changes in the in the uh, in the environment that, that they needed to adapt to. I mean, only a small part of that was that they needed to go online. A much bigger change was that they needed to stop charging and uh, start earning their money through uh, donations or, in some cases, advertising. This, is a, this was a new business model that they didn't react to in time. And Blockbuster had video, was renting you these VHS cassettes. And then when we got DVDs, they were slow to put them in their stores, and then they didn't figure out quickly enough that you could mail them and that would make things easier. Remember, people did that for a while. <laughs> and Netflix came and did that, started building their business. And then Netflix was uh, very quick in re- recognizing that streaming is coming. And they got into streaming and they've adapted uh, each each place along the line, whereas Blockbuster didn't and they're out of business. So whether it's in our financial lives or our personal lives or our business lives, if, if we want to survive and thrive, we really have to learn how to adapt. Exactly. And you really share these amazing stories. You know, it's our life. But to really get it all within the pages of the cover of the book Elastic gets us to really ponder on that. And regardless of the age that we are, of course, the millennials, they're kind of right into it. But, you know, those of us older than that kind of begin to see the picture and realize, okay, get with the program and uh, start getting really elastic about it. Yeah. In fact, um, in the book, I have a a series of uh, offer a series of what psychologists call inventories. They're questionnaires that measure your elastic thinking along different dimensions. And it's very interesting to see. Every, you know, humans are are very talented compared to other animals at elastic thinking, but there are individual differences, and there are different directions in which those differences can go. One of them is I call neophilia, or they call it in the, in the literature neophilia, which is the love of new things. And that's a good part of it because 
elastic thinking has to do with reacting to change, and, and if some people welcome the fact that they're reacting to change, and it, it, they see it as a challenge, and they see it as something exciting, and some people naturally see it as something uh, that's threatening or involves work that they don't want to do. So there, there are different ways that we each naturally react when change comes, and the Neophila inventory uh, tests what what your attitude is, your unconscious, deep-seated attitude is toward change. Um, and I have a number of other other tests, similar tests that test you in other directions. Uh, your degree of mindfulness, for example, which is how aware you are of how you're reacting to new situations. Uh, and for each inventory, I also give uh, um, exercises you can do if you want to develop that, that area. So really, elastic thinking is a set of skills it's not just one, and it's something that one can work on in, in your life. Just as you go to the gym and you try and keep in shape, you can keep in mental shape by doing these exercises. And so this is, the book has been called Accessible Science, and I can see that this is a gift for us. This is something that really is going to help us because we can do it at whatever pace we want to, but it certainly is going to enlighten us and really support us in moving forward. Yeah, when I write my books, I I, I delve deep into the science, but I, I try to make the book interesting, entertaining. There's so many stories that uh, one can tell to illustrate these points and they're they're fascinating uh stimulating stories so i try to mix the stories the examples and anecdotes with uh the results from research papers and in the end write it in a way that people understand what i'm saying and also that it sticks with them it's not one of those books that you close and then you go what did i read (laughs) (laughs) i have to read it again (laughs) right Yes, we do owe this to ourselves, is to really become more informed and aware. And here's a way to do it in, in such a simple fashion, I feel, because it is something that is like really fundamental to our life and moving and advancing in our life forward. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, if we didn't have elastic thinking, our species would have become extinct. Uh, about 100,000 years ago, uh, there was a... Um, a great climactic crisis, something like what, we, what we're seeing today, but we weren't civilized. We didn't have, uh, you know, uh, shelter and industry and transportation to help us avoid things. We were, we were just living in the wild. And most humans died, uh, depending on uh, which study you, you follow. So our numbers dwindled down to hundreds or a few thousand. And those who survived it turns out, were the ones who are more exploratory. They were the ones who knew where to get alternate food sources or had explored far enough away to go to areas that um, didn't have the, the uh, difficult climate change uh, and had, had more food, more water. And after, uh, after that happened, the, and, our, and our species started to recover in numbers, uh, that the, the, those who had survived a new kind of human where we we all had this more exploratory tendency and that's still in all of us today so we're really made to explore where you know humans are on squirrels don't get bored collecting nuts as far as we know <laughs> animals do repetitive things and 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 don't mind doing it it doesn't it doesn't bother them but humans uh, if you're on an assembly line and doing the same thing all day we get bored uh, we, or we we get stir crazy sitting alone. 
Um, we, we need the stimulation, and it's something natural in us. And that doesn't mean that everybody is always running around seeking uh, new experiences, but in general, we do like variety in our lives and change, and we're very good at adapting. So we just have to harness that and, uh, and you know, ride the wave of, uh, of what's going on in the world today. And that's a piece of it that um, is so important for us to realize because we may feel that, oh, there's something wrong with me or I'm, you know, the world is just crazy. But when you share with us this kind of information and insight, I think it helps to give us the resources to realize, ah, this is what's going on. This is how I can work with it. We can take these inventories, these questionnaires, and really begin to see how how we fit in and where things really are. And, and, and I think, again, it's that what I called a gift. It really is going to help us in advancing in our life. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the, the great advances, they were often not having to do so much with um, brilliant ideas as they were having to do with people who were not afraid of change and who examined whether change in their, in their own ideas was necessary. In my own field, um, I'm a physicist, and if you look at special relativity, for example, uh, that's not complicated math. It's something that any high school kid today could derive. It, 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 in some sense, wasn't um, a brilliant jump it, it was that, that Einstein made. It was uh, the fact that there were certain problems around hanging around in the physics world in 1905, and other physicists were working on them and, and within the framework that existed, the framework of ideas, the Newton's laws, and uh, they were trying to solve and address those problems using the existing framework. And all Einstein did in special relativity was to say, hey, uh, these are the assumptions we're making. They're, we've been making for hundreds of years, Newton's, Newton's theories. Uh, what if I just, uh, you know, don't make that? What if I relax that? What if I let myself make other assumptions and then... How can I answer these questions that are hanging around? And, and, and voila, I mean, he got to special relativity. I think the whole, <clears throat> the whole paper took a few weeks to write. And as I said, you can follow it with high school algebra. And it, what, was, what was brilliant and amazing about it was that uh, it was a new way of thinking. He framed the problem differently, and that's all it was. I mean, he did other work uh, later on, for instance, in general relativity that was uh, much more uh, – complex and, and and involved that took a lot more than that. But his first big step was special relativity. That's all it took. And that's what it took for, you know, these companies um, to uh, overtake the dead companies, Uber uh, and the, the new rideshare services. They just looked at, at how we get our, our transportation in a different way. And the cab companies who were complacent and uh, almost a cartel and felt that they had their, you know, um, captured customers who had to keep doing things the same way. They didn't react, and, and so they went down, and the ride shares, you know, went up. Um, and as I said, Netflix did the same thing. So it's, we can, you know, you can do that in your life, too, because we we end up getting complacent. We get in a certain direction in our lives, and it's maybe comfortable for us. Uh, maybe we're happy, maybe we're semi-happy, <laughs> maybe we're a little miserable, but we don't question our lives too often or the assumptions of our lives, of whether we have to keep our job or stay in a relationship or um, whether there's not op- other opportunities to take 
where we go, hey, you know, I, I actually could quit my job and try this new company. Uh, it really, you know, really wouldn't destroy things. Why, why am I, you know, why do I have this uh, huge inertia to keep going in the same direction if I don't like it? Um, so, you know, it's, it's all about questioning your assumptions and look and the way you're looking at things and how to create new ways, new realities, new ways of looking at things and uh, to get farther. Exactly. And that's why, you know, this whole book that is just, I guess, a, really a fraction of what there is about the brain. But here you're making it so available to us and all the stories. And you, you, one of the things that you mentioned that, you know, just a couple of years ago, there was the um, National Institute of Health did the Human Connectome Project, was it? Mm-hmm. And uh, identifying new areas of the brain, which I think is, again, just so incredible for us to realize how vast our brain is. I mean, it's always said that, you know, we would only use a fraction of our brain. But, you know, to identify these other areas, I think, is just, like, incredible. Well, <clears throat> neuroscience is totally revolutionizing how we see the brain and that things seem to shift to more and more... Uh, surprising results every few years. Uh, um, one result is that although we've known for years that certain structures exist in the brain, like the amygdala, which is talked about quite a bit, uh, we, we're learning now that these these structures that we thought were more or less homogenous or, or structures that had certain fixed uh, purposes and and um, and physical makeup are actually consist of a number of discrete substructures so that the amygdala is maybe 20 structures together, not just one, and that the amygdala has far more um, roles in, in different different uh, areas than we thought. People used to think it's the center of fear, and that's not true. There, it's, it's necessary for fear, but it's used in other emotions and in many other functions of the brain. And the Connectome Project is finding that, in fact, uh, a lot of the uh, properties of how we think and our, who we are don't even come from uh, simple structures like that, but they're, they have to do more with networks of structures that are always working together. That there is no connection between structure A and property of, you know, of your mind B, that it's far more complicated. Uh, many, many structures uh, intertwined acting together. So uh, these are complicated uh, neural networks uh, and they are, create a way of information processing that is nonlinear and very different from traditional computers. So that's why a computer, we call that a top-down uh, analysis, where a computer has a set of rules to follow. Uh, if this is true, then try that. If that is true, try this. And it, it says it's a bunch of if-then statements that process the information. Uh, and it, it goes according to a set of rules uh, predetermined, and the programmer knows exactly what the logic is of that treatment when, they, when, when the person writes the program. A neural net, <clears throat> on the other hand, executes what we call bottom-up information processing. Bottom-up processing is where there's a, where there's a bunch of, on, on one level, a bunch of little programs going on, little decisions being made that have no apparent connection to each other and when you put them together in the thousands or millions, uh, they create uh, decisions and um, information processing that is extremely intelligent at the higher end. And nobody, it, the, the, 
process of going from A to B is so complex that nobody can really understand what the thing is doing. But we're finding now that we can build programs, uh, computers that actually execute this, and we can train them to, like our brains, uh, start from the bottom up and come to conclusions at the top. I mean, it might be sound very abstract, but if you think of ants, that's the way ants operate. Each ant has a very simple program, whether to move forward, turn left, right, go backward, based on what it encounters. Uh, ants have very dumb, simple programs. Um, and yet, you can see ants on a leaf. If they need to, to get across a gap to another leaf, they will build a, a, an ant bridge from one to the next one that works quite well, that the ants can now crawl over other ants to get across. There's no architect, there's no programmer, there's no CEO designing the bridge and telling the ants what to do. It's all the these simple programs in the ants which come together uh, in the hundreds or thousands of ants uh, somehow uh, pieced together and it, it forms a bridge over the millions of years and such, such collective behavior has evolved from the individual programming of the ants. And our, our brains work that way. The neurons are the ants. The neurons have very simple programs if you get this much input fire and send it to these places and the other places getting the input, deciding where the fire and sending it to places. And based on these very simple micro uh, uh, processes, the macro process of your thoughts come out. And that's a beautiful and very imaginative, creative way of uh, processing information that is far superior to the traditional computer programming that we've done. And that's the kind of thing that is so fascinating and really um, encouraging to us to get that kind of insight and understanding and realize where we fall within the spectrum. And and again, just that, that encouragement to understand ourselves that we can do these sorts of things, whatever it is that we find is our talent and to move forward with it in the world, just as you are doing, exploring this and writing these books and and beyond that, entertaining us, too, with shows like MacGyver and Star Trek, The Next Generation, right? <laughs> <clears throat> well, I have. I've... I've uh done a lot in my uh, career, uh, starting as a theoretical physicist, and then I, was, I wrote for some television shows, and uh, I've painted, uh, and uh, I've done a lot of different things. I was an executive at a company for a while, and I uh, taught at Caltech, taught uh, physics and math, and people asked me, you know, I wandered around doing all these different things as if they're so different, but they're not. That's what the last the book is saying is that these aren't such different things. What I, what I've done is applied my elastic thinking abilities in different areas. So uh, you apply it one way in physics, another way, uh, you know, writing for television, um, another way when you're painting, but it's really the same kind of thinking. It, it's, it's, it's all about questioning the assumptions, looking at things in a different way, you know, then the writing or the painting or the, you know, what else you're doing is, is a craft that you have to learn to execute. But underneath that uh, is the elastic thinking that drives you. And uh, so if you know how to get in touch with that, you can basically do anything of that sort. And well, with your teaching and with uh, the entertainment, with the TV shows, with the movies, it seems to me that um, kind of at the core of it may be this desire really to teach, to instruct, to inspire others. I love uh, doing that, yeah, whether it's teaching or inspiring. I mean, if I write something and people you know, enjoy reading it, that I get a, 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 
a charge out of that. I like I like it when uh, to to reach people, to touch people, you know, to communicate. I, I find that to be fun. And then you know, and to think about the ideas and discuss with people is always fascinating. And you know, one of the exercises in the book says uh, to broaden your thinking, go out and find some people who are very different from you and talk to them and listen to them. It can be you're on a on a bus or a train or you're in a pub, uh, wherever it is. Uh, don't turn away from people who seem very different. Turn toward them and you know, listen to them, and you'll 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 get different points of view. And if you take them seriously. Studies show that if you're just exposed to different ideas, even if you don't agree and you even scorn them, there have been interesting studies where people go, that's a dumb idea. Then they test the people afterwards and they still have broadened their thinking just by being exposed to other ways of thinking. So um, so that's great. I mean, talking and interacting with other people uh, who are different, think differently and have different opinions is, uh, is a great way to broaden your, your own ideas. And that is certainly another very simple way of just living our life on a daily basis is we're sure to come in contact with people that are different than ourselves in this world and and to just try that little exercise and see where we get with it. Yes, and these exercises I give are not, you know, they're not magic pills. The idea is that you incorporate into your lifestyle these things that you you just talk to strangers. Don't do it. You're, you're, when you're a kid, your parents say, don't talk to strangers. But when you're an adult, do talk to strangers. Um, go try new foods. Uh, I go into a place, if I go into a restaurant, people say, oh, what's popular? I go, what's unpopular? <laughs> I, what does no one order? What's the weirdest thing on your menu? Oh, let me try that. You know? <laughs> now, maybe that's a little extreme because I am that way. But, but you know, even if you get something and it's bad, I don't, I don't, I don't mind because, it's interesting. It's different. It, it, it may, it may. I love to cook, and it may stimulate me in another way. So I'll get some, some maybe awful combination in some place that someone thought up. But then when I'm cooking, you know, a week later, that will stimulate an idea in my mind, and I'll use that twist and get a great, you know, dish out of it. So um, that's how the mind works. That's you know, physicists, even Isaac Newton, famous for being the most, the biggest loner, probably. Um, Asperger's uh, uh, person who, who did not like to interact with other people and uh, kept to himself um, would not have done any of his important work had he truly kept to himself. Uh, he didn't like other people, but he communicated a lot with other people through uh, letters and he had visitors. And we, if you look at his biography, uh, his greatest work, the Principia that he wrote where he revolutionized uh, physics uh, uh, was stimulated by a visit that he had from somebody who came to ask him a question. And that question got him thinking and that thinking led to, to all that work. He had done other work over the years and let it go and never gotten anywhere. And then suddenly it all crystallized when someone came and asked him a question. So we all need the stimulation of other people to have our best ideas and to, um, and to move forward in life. And you are certainly giving us a, a very great uh, fundamental here, a great foundation in reading Elastic, unlocking the brain's ability to embrace change, written in such an easy fashion, entertaining to the hilt, I think, because of these great stories and ideas that, uh, you know, it I think it's one of those books that once we start turning the pages, we can't just put it down. It's that fascinating. 
Well, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And so, of course, it's uh, quite freshly new, but certainly available at all of our f- favorite book sources as well. You can get it anywhere. <laughs> and you should. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, not that's not just the author talking about it. I think, you know, I underscore that, that uh, really it's in our own self-best interest to read this book because we are going to gain so much more than we ever could have imagined that we, we would from reading a book. Well, thank you, Kate, and it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Likewise. Thank you for your great work, and uh, we look for more, but certainly we have a lot to work with right here until the next time, right? Yes, I think I think it, there, you, you can uh, read it and you can improve your uh, your life and help help you thrive today. Wonderful. Well, many thanks for your work and spending time with us this morning, Leonard Malodinow. Thank you. And you may want to follow Leonard in these couple of ways, Twitter and Instagram. That would be at L-M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W. That's Leonard Melodinoff, but just his initial L. Or his website is www.leonard, last name, M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W, dot com. Leonard Melodinoff.